right. Well, um, this is the, the Lord's Day, and it is um, the, uh, the day that we actually celebrate or have opportunity to celebrate or focus our attention on the resurrection. And it, would just, it just so happens that our place in the book of Hebrews winds us up talking about the resurrection of Christ. Isn't that interesting? Love how the Holy Spirit works these things out. Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 9 if you're not there already. And um, I want to uh, say a few words of introduction uh, to this wonderful passage we're going to look at. There is a lot here, but uh, you know most of it because you've been with us so long and we have defined lots of stuff here. So let me begin by saying that you have heard it said, I believe, that you can't take it with you, right? You've heard it. It's a rather used proverb, but it, it never seems to lose its sting. Initially, it's a warning against materialism, and it has broadened in its scope to include, well, anything and everything. The bottom line is that you cannot take money, your possessions, or anything that you love or, or work so hard for to obtain with you when you die, you got out of this. You, what you get out of this world, you have to leave here, and you leave here the way you came in, with just yourself. At the same time, while you cannot take your possessions with you, you can determine what will happen to them when you depart this earth to a significant degree. Being of sound mind and body, you write up your last will and testament, a legally binding document that dispenses your millions to whomever and wherever you wish. You can apportion your property, your baseball cards, your favorite pair of old sneakers, even the dog. What you want to allocate and to whom, you simply stipulate on the testament. Now, you might think it's really the next best thing to taking it with you, or maybe being there, I don't know. At least you have, to say, have a say as to where it all goes and how it's to be used. And there are even stipulations that you can add. People have fun with this. It's a greater way to set someone straight, even. Bob gets the Ferrari on the condition that he marries his long-term girlfriend, or long-time girlfriend, with, within one year before my death. Otherwise, it goes to Nancy, my niece, on the day that she gets her license. It's rather amazing, I think, how much you, uh, you can say and actually have a say in this world after you leave it, maybe even more than you had ever had when you were here. Sad part is this, that in order for a testator, in his words, to be valid, he or she has to die first. Sorry, but that's how it works. Our knowledge of testators and wills is not a modern concept. The ancients practiced the same thing, and and believe it or not, so did God. Does that strike you as odd? It's true. God left a last will and testament. It's called the New Covenant. And right away, I can see the wheels in your head turning. You're already ahead of me. But God would have to die first in order for its benefits to be dispensed to its beneficiaries? How can that be? Well, Jesus the Christ, the God-man, was the testator for this testament, and he died. We all know. And his death activated the covenant, or the testament, so that its members could receive its great benefits. Now, if, if you're expecting there to be a twist, a twist in this scenario, you're right. 
There always is when God's involved in the mundane. What makes Jesus the best testator there is, is that he not only determined who receives the covenant benefits when he died, but by rising from the dead, he made sure that they do. In this way, he is the executor of this testament as well. In fact, his resurrection guarantees that the determination of benefits and new life shall be what they shall be for eternity. Jesus confirmed a great deal in his resurrection, and he will accomplish a great deal more because of it as well. And we'll look at this whole process more closely in our passage this morning in Hebrews chapter 9. We're looking at verses 15 to 28. Let me begin by saying that resurrection is not a word that we use on a regular basis or in regular conversation. If we do at all, it's usually in a figurative way, right? Bill, in this case, it does you no good to resurrect the past. Or the company resurrected an old program that got lots of results years ago and simply tweaked it. You get the idea. Since the word is so seldom used, we shouldn't be surprised that the central idea that it conveys to Christians, that being Jesus' physical body coming up out of the grave alive, is really not the first thing on the minds of unbelievers, is it? It's more likely to be the last thing, if it ever pops up in their minds at all. And when it does, most likely they would consider it to be far-fetched. Just tradition, folklore, that the Christian religion needed to incorporate in order to give it, well, some authority. A person rising out of the grave after being dead for three days. I don't think so. This is 2021, after all. Even the religious unbelievers who claim the Bible is part of their belief system are guilty of this same skepticism, understanding it in a highly symbolic way. In the spring of 2016, Reverend Roger Wolsey, an elder in the United Methodist Church in Colorado, who denies many cardinal tenets of, the Orthodox, of Orthodox Christianity, he had this to say about the resurrection in a blog post. Quote, going to heaven after we die isn't what the faith or salvation is about. Jesus' resurrection didn't have to be understood as a physical one for it to be a real and meaningful one. Paul and many of the early disciples encountered a spiritually risen Christ, end quote. A year later, another Methodist pastor, the Reverend Dr. Mark Holland, was asked if he believed in the resurrection. Yes, he replied, metaphorically. 1 Corinthians 15.44, it is raised a spiritual body. The truth of the gospel does not hinge on whether you and I read this literally or spiritually. Let's just live into the mystery. What does that mean? I don't know, your guess is as good as mine. Whatever it means, it sure sounds ecumenical. And that's because Reverend Holland is the executive director of Mainstream UMC, an organization that exists to promote something called One Church Plan. It boasts of, quote, standing squarely on biblical precedent for allowing Christians to disagree on issues as important as Scripture and tradition, and remain in the same church. The one church plan represents an open ecclesiology where we can live with differences, end quote. 
I bet you didn't know that there was a biblical precedent that allowed Christians to disagree on the literal resurrection of Jesus and still be part of one church. Neither did I. That's because there isn't any. In fact, last I checked, if you deny the literal physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, well, you're not a Christian. Period. It would appear that the United Methodist Church has more to be concerned about today than gender, sexuality, and marriage. And not just the United Methodist Church. The problem of spiritualizing precious doctrines of the faith has become a common practice in the body of Christ at large in America. And this leads to dismissing biblical facts and reason and the literalness of spiritual truth. Why? To interject mystery, I think, into the faith and to so sensationalize it that it might be more appealing and user-friendly. And more mystical and sensational they make it, the better. You see, when the faith becomes conveniently and comfortably vague and undefined, a greater number of people can rally under its banner. It's now a faith that allows everyone to experience God in his and her own way, interpret the Bible in his and her own way, subjectively. The idea of one interpretation with many applications or taking the Bible literally at face value or using sound and universally accepted hermeneutical principles and taking into account historical fact would likely wind everyone up on the same page, a page that many would rather skip. It makes for a faith that is too restrictive, too literal, too inflexible, and quite frankly, too boring. It has the potential to offend the hearer besides. And that's why these two Methodist pastors find a more genial faith that boasts of a spiritual resurrection, not a literal one. But I wonder, what becomes of a faith detached from historical fact? Is it even Christianity? No, it's not. The eminent theologian of Princeton many, many years ago, the late Gresham Machen, once said, quote, if the saving work of Christ were confined to what he does now for every Christian, there would be no such thing as a Christian gospel, an account of an event which put a new face on life. What we should have left would be simply mysticism. And mysticism is quite different from Christianity. It is the connection of the present experience of the believer with an actual historical appearance of Jesus in the world which prevents our religion from being mysticism and causing it to be Christianity. It must certainly be admitted then that Christianity does not depend on something, I'm sorry, that does depend on something that happened. Our religion must be abandoned altogether unless it is at a, at a definite point in history Jesus died as the propitiation for the sins of men. Christianity is certainly dependent upon history, end quote. Machen was exactly right. We don't deny the wonderful and powerful experiences that are unique to the Christian faith. We firmly admit that such experiences, though, are based in a real historical event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Beloved, the tomb was empty. 
Jesus was not there. And we don't go looking for the living among the dead, right? It is the basis of the gospel message, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The basis, the basis for much in the Christian faith. I said the gospel message. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Paul also said Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised, and on the third day, according to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15. The resurrection was the basis, or is the basis, of our preaching. Paul came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and according to Paul's custom, he visited them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Resurrection is the basis of our justification. He was delivered over because of our wrongdoings and was raised because of our justification. It's the basis of our sanctification. Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It guarantees the future resurrection of our own bodies. Jesus is called, if you remember, the first fruits of many to follow, Romans 8, 29. It is the basis of God's judgment. God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to repent because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he appointed, having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead. Well, last week we got a glimpse of Jesus making his triumphal entry, not so much into Jerusalem, but into the heavenly sanctuary. And this morning we further qualify that triumphal entry as the appearance of the resurrected Christ. Our passage teaches us very simply that the risen Christ is our guarantor of eternal life, the testator that put in force new covenant benefits, the purifier of our souls and our blessed hope. Let's explore that. Let's unpack that. The risen Christ guaranteed our eternal life. This is one thing that the writer to the Hebrews is quite adamant about. It's in verse 15. We read there, For this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the violations that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promises of the eternal inheritance. Well, you'll notice right away that the verse is connected to what comes before it. It begins for this reason. For what reason is Jesus the mediator of the new covenant? For the reason stated in verses 13 and 14. And if you were with us last time, you heard about Jesus' real triumphal entry. It was a bold, victorious, deliberate, and planned entrance that he made into the heavenly sanctuary before the presence of God. Verse 15 picks up on this theme and says that it's because of this grand entrance that Jesus is now the mediator of the new covenant. A mediator, of course, is a go-between, one who intervenes between two parties, either to restore peace and friendship or to form a covenant. Well, Jesus did both for us. He reconciled us to God, and at the same time, he ratified God's covenant with us, his new covenant. Jesus, therefore, is God's ordained medium 
of communication between him and us. God accepts us in Christ, and we come to God in Christ. Now, there is no one better than Jesus to to administer God's new covenant. And Paul would later write that there is just one, only one, mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So those are the facts of verse 15. Here's the result of those facts. When Jesus became our mediator between God and us, he guaranteed our eternal life. We are guaranteed eternal life. Look again at verse 15. The basic sentence of the verse is this. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. That's the basic sentence. Can you see the purpose in Jesus' resurrection? His triumphant entrance into heaven made him the mediator of the new covenant so that, it says, or for the purpose that we whom God has has called may receive this promise of eternal life. Common Greek word translated inheritance here is a lot fuller in the New Testament than it is outside of it. Here it really refers to heaven. It refers to salvation in its fullest sense. And that's what was guaranteed to us. By the way, we can plug in the parenthetical thought of this sentence that we just skipped over a moment ago. Jesus' death took place also for the redemption of the violators that were committed, uh, violations rather, that were committed under the first covenant as well. In other words, Jesus as mediator of the new covenant not only guarantees that we have eternal life, but that the Old Testament saints who are under the old covenant and were anticipating Jesus coming do as well. In fact, they're enjoying eternal, an eternal inheritance right now, even as we speak. Great thing about Jesus' redeeming work is that it runs both directions of history, doesn't it? It reaches back to save the true believers under the old covenant, redeeming them from their sins, and it stretches forward to save all those true believers who come after his cross work. And that is all because of his resurrection. The risen Christ is our guarantor of eternal life, specifically because he has risen. And if he has, so will you. We hasten on to number two, though. The risen Christ is our testator to put in force a new covenant benefits. If you look at verses 16 and 17 with me, here he says, For where there is a covenant, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when people are dead. For if it never, if it never is in force, or it is never in force, rather, while the one who made it lives. There is a, a double meaning uh, to the word covenant in this passage. Up to this point in the book, we understood it to refer to a contract that God makes with man. We also rehearsed all of those specific covenants with Adam, if you remember, culminating with the new covenant. Well, at this point in the book of Hebrews, the writer introduces another aspect of covenant here. He calls it a testament. And the Greek word translated testament has the added element of last will and testament. It had become really a technical term in legal context of the first century. 
The idea of our verse is that God had determined to bless us with new covenant benefits such as the indwelling Holy Spirit, the complete word of God, the mind of Christ, the intercessory work on our behalf between the Holy Spirit in us and Jesus Christ at at God's right hand, Jesus' high priestly ministry that sympathizes with our weaknesses and gives us grace and times of need, a confident walk, not to mention the fullness of redemption at Jesus' second coming, just to name a few. What we learn here is that God has dispensed these benefits to us through Christ's cross work as testator who wishes, uh, whose wishes are, are honored only after he dies. Jesus' death unlocked the inheritance that God determined to give us under the Old Covenant. In fact, the writer cannot stress enough the significance of Jesus' death as the inaugurating uh, agent. So he provides an illustration for us in verses 18 to 22. He says there that even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by, by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the, and the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And almost all things are cleansed with blood according to the law. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. If you never knew much about the Old Covenant and its sacrificial system before you joined us in our study of the book of Hebrews sometime last year, you certainly have a a good grounding in it now, I think. So there's no need really to review the blood rituals and the cleansing practices of Israel. The point to be made here is simply the importance of blood when inaugurating a covenant. First covenant, which in this context is the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, it had to be inaugurated with blood, the blood of a perfect substitute. Blood has always been symbolic of a sacrifice for sin. And as the law itself taught, without blood there is no forgiveness of sins. And that brings us right back again to the idea summarized in verses 16 and 17. Jesus, as a testator, was able to set in motion, activate, unlock, dispense the blessings of the new covenant upon his death. Because he died, the Christian has been granted the full benefits of the new covenant. And because he lives, he will see to it that we receive in full those benefits in heaven someday. Number three, risen Christ is the purifier who has cleansed us for heaven. I really love this particular section. We begin in just the first few verses here. The writer starts by saying, therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in heaven to be cleansed with these things, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. What's going on here? Well, verse 23 draws a comparison between the original spiritual heavenly sanctuary and its physical earthly copy. By now, you understand the difference between the two. By now, you understand this difference. The copy pointed the way to the original. That is what was to come. The copy taught the people about the original and how much better it is. The copy prepared the people to anticipate 
the original. And those who live with the copy certainly place their faith in the original. And the earthly, physical locales and rituals of the copy foreshadowed the original. You understand that. Verse 24 summed, it, summed up this fact very simply. For Christ did not enter the holy place made with hands, the copy, but, but the true one into heaven itself. See the difference between the original and the copy. You see it. By now you also see or understand that unlike the copy which was cleansed with the blood of bulls and goats, the heavenly sanctuary was cleansed with better sacrifices than these. And that makes sense since we've learned that animal blood would not do for a heavenly sanctuary. Jesus therefore offered himself as a blood sacrifice which the Father accepted and which cleansed the heavenly sanctuary. Verses 25 and 26 sum this idea up well and elaborates a bit on Jesus' sacrifice. He says, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with the blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been revealed to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient to pay the penalty for the sin of those who had believed and who will believe in the gospel when all is said and done in a once-for-all sacrificial act. If it wasn't sufficient, Jesus would, ha would have had to die over and over and over since the beginning of time, which is really a horrendous thought. You understand this too fairly well, I believe. What you might find difficult to understand, or at least pause over with some bewilderment, is why would the heavenly sanctuary ever need to be cleansed with Jesus' blood? Why would anything in heaven ever need cleansing? Isn't everything in heaven always in a state of perfection? Hmm. It's a great question, and we need to answer it, because for some... It might add a, an element of contradiction to the text. And I can tell you with confidence that any thought of contradiction fades away when you come to know what the original sanctuary in heaven really is, what Jesus really cleansed, what God revealed to Moses, and what Moses copied for the sacrificial system under the Old Covenant, and what God would later reveal to the Apostle John in his revelation was not a building. It wasn't a building with two compartment, compartments, each with its own furnishing, furnishing, separated by a heavy curtain. No, what Moses and John saw in heaven was the people of God as they would, would all come to be at the end of time. Did you get that? They saw the church in her complete, mature, and chaste form. What the writer himself will refer to later in chapter 12, verse 23, as the general assembly, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary, therefore, refers to the cleansing of the people, the body of Christ, the purifying of the body from the inside out. God, through Christ's sacrifice, cleansed conscience of his people. Nothing but the blood of Christ 
can cleanse the conscience, can cleanse a person from the inside out. The church, once cleansed of her sin, is now fit for heaven. And this state of the church is the heavenly sanctuary. It's where God dwells. And if you find that hard to fathom, think of this. We are, both individually and collectively, the temple of the Holy Spirit now, are we not? Oh, the love that God has exhibited to Christians. Number four. The risen Christ is our blessed hope. Our blessed hope. Verse 27. And just as it is destined for people to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ too, after having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await. The writer draws his thoughts to a close with an appropriate reference to the return of the risen Lord. He argues that just as everyone who lives will die and face judgment, so Christ also died and he received God's judgment bent for the elect upon himself. He bore the sins of many. This is a glorious thought in it. Draws upon the theme of what Christ did in order to save us. You may remember our refrain from last, our last study. Jesus saved us by his death. Jesus saves by his death. Jesus bore the sins of many on the cross. He died specifically for those of the household of God, which resulted in their salvation. But the real thrust of this last portion is that because Jesus is risen, because he entered triumphantly into heaven and performs his priestly duties for the church militant, that's us, right now, he will at some point return for the rest of his sheep, bring them home, to join the other members of his body, and the church will become the church triumphant, just as he is now. What we have before us, then, is the second coming. And the way that the writer puts it is this. Jesus will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await. Jesus came once to declare war on sin and save his people. He's coming a second time with a very different agenda. He will judge the world this time around, but not before he takes us home. Elsewhere, Paul speaks of Christ's second coming as our blessed hope. It's really a certainty. There's no chance here. It is a certainty that he will come to take us to be where he is. Let me draw all of this to a close. By saying this, there's been lots of talk this morning about shedding of blood, sprinkling of blood, and the significance of the death of Christ. We even had the Lord's Supper this morning. We talked about that. We've talked about it so much that you may have lost sight, maybe, of the significance of Jesus' resurrection. And I don't mention that because today happens to be Easter, but because it is the strong implication of the text. Remember, we began by stating how we, were further how we further qualify the triumphal entry as the appearance of the resurrection of Christ. And don't forget how verse 15 begins, for this reason, for the reason that Jesus rose from the grave and made a grand and triumphant entrance into heaven, boldly, physically, before the presence of God. And it is on this basis that of, of 
it is on this basis that that uh, the accomplishments of Christ, both in life and in death, uh, will secure our eternal inheritance. Hopefully you see the implication from this text that Jesus is now risen. Even though we talk about what he, he accomplished in his death, he is now risen, since that is the only way, in fact, that he could ever enter heaven triumphantly to cleanse the heavenly sanctuary. What takes place in heaven is the work of the resurrected Lord. He set in motion, yes, and inaugurated much by his death. But it was no ordinary death, you see, as the resurrection would prove. This is an insight, there's an insightful comment that the late James Boyce made in his chapter, The Pivotal Doctrine, Resurrection, and His Enduring Work, Fundamentals of the Christian Faith. He says this, quote, which is more important to Christian theology, the death of Jesus or his resurrection? The question is unanswerable. Although the death of Christ is what he explicitly came into the world to accomplish, the resurrection is no less important historically as evidence for, the, for Christ's claims. It is only because of the resurrection that the gospel of the cross was understood. And then was preserved and transmitted across the centuries to us, end quote. And he's right. He's right, of course. The death of Christ was necessary to accomplish God's eternal covenant of redemption on the one hand, and the resurrection of Christ guaranteed the effectiveness of that unique death on the other. Without the resurrection, Jesus' death, and his birth for that matter, would simply have not held any great significance at all. It would have been just another birth, just another death. How great is it for us that we enjoy the full benefits of the new covenant and will someday enjoy them to the fullest in heaven? If you're what Jesus calls born again, then you have the guarantee of eternal life, for Jesus is your guarantor. You are the beneficiary of God's mercy and grace meted out in the new covenant, for Jesus is your testator. And you enjoy strong and confident living that comes only by the cleansing of the conscience and the ability to deal with guilt when it comes because Jesus is our purifier. And you live with a certainty of a great inheritance that awaits because Jesus is coming back for you. How many people in the world would love to have these promises? Don't be fooled by their callous and self-righteous veneer. Most, if not all, would want them. But as we pointed out already, these promises cannot be attained by human will or strength. You cannot buy them, manufacture them. You cannot inherit them. You can spend all your money in the world, expend all the energy and ingenuity that you have, plan all you want, but you can never obtain by yourself or with the help of anybody else for that matter. Only what Christ alone can give by faith in his work. Faith in his work in life and faith in his work on the cross. And he has proven it by rising from the dead. And yet we still find time to complain. Still find time to grumble. With the worst over and the best yet to come, is there 
any reason why we should ever be moved in this life, or complain for that matter? How grateful are you to be part of the new covenant, to be the recipients of Jesus' cross work and resurrection? I hope you give that some serious thought when you leave here today. And know that the risen Christ did not enter a holy place made by hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Father, we thank you for this time together.